Marriage and family are foundational to our civilization. Not everyone will get married, but everyone will feel the effects of a changing marriage culture. God has created marriage between one man and woman to be a picture of His gospel and to bring health to a society. So at the Southern Baptist Convention, a group of leaders including Todd Wagner, Susie Hawkins, Randy Stinson, and Jen Wilkin discussed how churches can contribute to flourishing Christian families. We hope you enjoy this message. My name is Daniel Patterson. I serve on our team here at the ERLC, and I'm so glad to be with you here this morning. You know, we're talking about the gospel and the future, and as we think about the future, we naturally think about next generations and what's it going to be like, and there's nothing more central to that question than family. So I'm really happy to be joined on stage this morning with a great group of leaders, and we're going to talk about this for the next little bit. So to my right is Randy Stenson. Randy is Senior Vice President for Academic Administration and Provost at Southern Seminary in Louisville. Jen Wilkin. Jen is an author and Bible teacher, and she's Director of Classes and Curriculum here at the Village Church. Next to her is Susie Hawkins. She's also from Dallas here. She's been actively involved in ministry as a pastor's wife, as a teacher, as a volunteer. She's on the board with uh, Baptist Global Response. She's an author involved in women's ministry around the country, and it's so good to have you with us. And Todd Wagner on the end, who is senior pastor of Watermark Community Church here in Dallas. So let's jump right in. Randy, I know you are provost of a very large seminary. You're dealing with equipping pastors and training them for future congregations, future leadership and ministry. But you're not just training them for that, you're also training them to be fathers and mothers and for very real questions that they're going to have to face in the life of their congregations, but also in the life of their own family. What, what are some things that you try and focus on or that you've learned and tried to instill in, in others through your years in higher education? Yeah, so our assumptions at Southern Seminary are that these young men and women that are coming to us now are coming with more personal challenges, not less. So we're in a post-Christian culture Um, They're growing up in homes that aren't necessarily Christian homes. Uh, They're lacking examples that previous generations might have had. And so we're already assuming that they're coming to us with these these types of challenges. Um, On campus, we do various things. We have parenting conferences. There's a lot of individual mentoring going on between professors and students. Um, We have a partnership with Family Life where they have a couple that they have seconded to us to help our uh, students with marriage and family and parenting issues. But to be honest with you, we're counting on the local church. I mean, the seminary can only, can only do so much. We have a required course that every student takes that pertains to marriage and family that has a parenting component to it. But uh, it's the local church, really, that we're counting on. Frankly, not just in Louisville, uh, because so many of our students are dispersed with distance education. But I would just say to any church that is sending students to a seminary um, is to really make sure, I mean, it's a ministry qualifier, able to manage one's home. Teaching is a craft. They need to be able to teach. But teaching is a craft that's honed over, over a long period of time. But marriage and family are happening right now. And so my encouragement would be, we're doing the best we can to partner with local churches in this task. But to local churches that are sending students to seminary, really kind of double down on uh, your efforts in making sure that their marriage and their parenting strategies are, are biblical and, um, and that they're pursuing one another, they're pursuing their children, 
and uh, we can't uh, we can't do it without that kind of a partnership. Absolutely, Jen, you're. You're a leading voice in evangelicalism on all sorts of issues. You've spoken a lot on women in the life of ministry and the family. And obviously, Scripture never changes. Our convictions on issues don't change. But the conversation does shift over time. What, what have you uh, witnessed over these last years? How has the conversation shifted? What, and what implications does that have to how we think through being faithful to everything the gospel demands of our lives? Yeah, it's been interesting to watch. When I became a mother in 1996, I, um, I had a master's level education. I was working a full-time job, and I quit to stay at home. And my church and, and other believers awarded me all kinds of virtue points for that, and I was into it. I was for it. And I remember thinking, if you just got rid of your cable bill or you cut your cell phone plan down, that all women could do what I was doing. And um, over time, I've learned, you know, to nuance that view. I had quickly forgotten that I was raised by a single mom for whom that was not going to be an issue. Uh, and whether it's a single parent situation or just a situation where both parents actually need to work to support the family, it's been encouraging to see the church learn to nuance its tone around those things. And to, I mean, I remember hearing a message about how a woman who works is like the ostrich who pecks her young. I remember hearing that message in the late 90s. I think what we've learned over time is that we can be less concerned with um, a woman's proximity to um, the home and more concerned with the proximity of her heart to the scriptures. Uh, a message that is always timeless for mothers or for fathers is where is your heart in relation to the Lord? And then allow people to use godly wisdom to make decisions about whether work is the option or not, or is it, you know, but to, to honor the Lord in being a mother um, is, is a, an issue of the heart. Uh, and that for us to sit in judgment on external choices rather than pastor to the heart uh, was, was something that we needed to move away from. So I've been encouraged to see that shift over the years and also to do some repenting myself. Yeah. Amen. Susie, you have two children that you've raised with your husband, grandchildren in the home. As you look back on raising kids, playing with grandkids, what were some of the things that you all tried to cultivate in your home to make sure that it was a godly climate, a Christ-exalting atmosphere that, that we could learn from? Well, I think it would, what we did would be what all parents do, which is basically when you look at babies, the babies you just made, you go into this complete panic mode. Like, <laughs> what have we done? We have yeah. no idea what we're doing. You never have any idea what you're doing, or I never did. You just go with it. Um, and, and this is really, really, Danny, a cliche to say this, but cliches are born out of the truth. And that is just to be on your face in prayer that God will give you grace and show you how to parent these children that he has given you. And I do think, um, I love how now families have mission statements. I love that. I love strategies and goals. And we were weak on that. We just kind of did what we thought was best. But I do think keeping before your children and your, as a family, that you are followers of Christ. And you're going to mess up, and you're going to yell at your kids, or I have once or twice done that. I know. I don't, I don't want to say this in front of everyone. but you get on the panel? Yeah. I know. I'm sorry. We're going to have to. <laughs> but nevertheless, you keep that goal in front of you, that we are followers of Christ, and that's what we do. That's what our family does. And then you 
has to do a lot with, Jen, what you said, is that then working with your children, observing them, and praying for them as individuals, seeing their own spiritual journey. And I do want to say one thing, Danny, is that being a grandparent is so interesting, this stage of life, because you have the intimacy of your children and your grandchildren and your family, but you also have a little bit of a distance, you know, to observe how that generation is parenting, how they manage their marriage and their home and their time, just continuing to pray for them and push toward that goal. I pray every day for our family that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors, ourselves. Martin Luther said, love God with all your heart and, and do what you please. Mm. So there you go. Amen. And I think just trying to keep that as the focus, keeping that goal out there is really the most help, has been the most helpful to me, no matter what season of life. Yeah. Yeah, Todd, one of the issues that I'm seeing a lot in news, in churches, getting a lot of attention is the issue of foster care. Uh, and, I, and I'm really struck by how accomplishable this problem is. But with the number of churches, the number of foster care uh, kids that need homes, you're, you're the pastor of a very large church, largest churches in the country. What has your church done to address these kinds of issues? We want to learn from you and think through these issues carefully. Uh, let me work backwards yeah. because one of, the, one of the first things you want to just talk about is why there is a problem with kids in foster care. And so you need to realize that biological parents are not the enemy. Uh, they, they are ultimately, the goal is to uh, reunite them with their children. We're not trying to take their children from them and put them in our homes. And so one of the things that we do is we um, work with uh, different agencies and, and court-appointed parenting programs and things like that to say, we'd love to mentor these people. Our goal is for every child that we place is to restore the family that they have come from and to work with them. In fact, we... we pray that our reputation in town would be when CPS comes to take your child, that they would say, if you want your child back, you better get yourself over to Watermark, mm. because they will love you and care for you and disciple you, and they will help you become the kind of individual that will foster um, a home that is uh, going to cause your children to flourish and not want us to take them from you. That means you need recovery programs. That means you need to have uh, people who will never actually bring children at home. This is what's great about this opportunity is some folks who will never actually be able to bring kids to their home can get involved with that aspect of the foster problem, hmm. right? I think you're right. Uh, there's 100,000 kids nationwide, roughly, that are waiting to be placed. Um, and we could wipe out all 100,000 of those kids, but if we don't deal with the dysfunctional homes that are out there, right. there's going to be another crew running right there behind them. And so you got to remember what the goal is. It's not just to place these children, but to, but to create disciples and individuals that will be able to love the children. I mean, no parent wakes up with a goal of ruining their child's life and becoming a threat to their well-being. They don't want to be a mother ostrich that pecks their yeah. kid to death. And yet because of their addiction, their brokenness, and their own helplessness, that's often what's happening. And so you want to be that grace to them and teach them the key to being a, an effective parent. So there's that side of it. Um, on the other side of it, you know, you just need to realize it's a process. So when we began to really talk about this, and we began to talk about it because there were some things that we were looking to do that as I really began to pray about whether or not we should do this large-scale effort that I think would raise the value of, of life in general, um, you know, I thought, okay, Lord, you may want me to do this. I know you want us as your people to do this. This is what faithfulness looks like, right? This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Father, right? To visit orphans and widows in their distress. And so while we may do this other thing, which isn't important right now to talk about, I know you want us to do that. So when I spoke about this, we had, we had 3,000 people that first week 
that said they were interested in foster care and adoption. Okay, now, of those 3,000 people that responded that week, a lot of them were single and were newly married. Okay, uh, it turns out about 3% of them, as we look back about, you know, back a number of months and years, uh, were ready to actually move forward in the first year. Okay, about 100 couples in a year had now uh, gotten engaged in having children in their home, okay, through the foster care program, in addition to the ones that were already there. So you just need to realize you can't teach on James 127 one time <laughs> and expect there to be a culture that cares about this issue. It needs to be a constant reminder, this is what we do as God's people in this community. Right now in Dallas County, uh, our, our first goal was to have more homes waiting for children who needed a safe place to, to be placed than children who need to be placed. Because, you know, I'm sure many of you know this, but they like to place children in the county that they're removed from. But we looked up and realized in Dallas County there were more kids waiting to be placed in homes than there were homes waiting for children. So we said, we're going to take that down. First of all, we're going to have more homes waiting than kids. Secondly, so when you, when you teach on this, you just got to remember it's going to be a process. You don't just teach on Matthew 28, 19, and 20 one time and expect your body to be committed to evangelism. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a constant, ongoing uh, reminder. Everything you do is driving people toward that end. So uh, you create a culture of discipleship where people's desire to be faithful can be um, sustained and encouraged. You create care communities. Because if you want to kill a foster care initiative in your church, just have the families who did it burn out, get discouraged, and walk around with their heads down. Yeah. And people go, I don't know what we should do this year, but it's not that. Right. <laughs> so you want to make sure you really develop uh, solid care for those families. It's a great way for folks to get involved who can't, for whatever reason, have children in their home, won't have children in their home. Um, and, and to come around them. So there's a whole lot more, but uh, last thing I'll say is, is you need to institutionalize this thing. Any goal that's going to really be accomplished or any ground that's going to be taken in your church, you can't just have it as a said value. You've got to show that it's really a value. And so that means we put guys on staff that their job was to encourage and cultivate and partner with our city and individuals and families that are already in game engaged in order to help them be successful, to be a resource to our city. And we began to resource. That's what I mean by institutionalize it. We made it a core part of what we're about. It is part of what makes us, um, I think, faithful as God's people in a city. It ought to be part of our renown that they care for kids outside of the womb. They don't just speak about the value of children in the womb. They care for kids outside the womb like no other people. And they restore families like no other community of people do. That ought to be the reputation of the church. That's not going to happen from one message. Okay? That's going to happen because you create a culture and you cultivate and you create equipping and training opportunities toward that end. So as we think about foster care, similar to that, Randy, is the issue of adoption. And, I mean, praise God. I feel like adoption has been one of the areas over the last decade that we've just seen an amazing resurgence, particularly among evangelical churches, and I know you have eight children, some of whom were adopted very young, some of whom were adopted considerably you know, non-baby, older. Uh, and there are a lot of families in churches that are thinking through, you know, we want to adopt, we already have some children, this might, maybe this displaces birth order, maybe this changes dynamics. What, what factors should these families be thinking through as someone who's navigated this personally? Right, so we have eight children. Five of them are adopted. First, I want to say not everybody should adopt, okay? Um, we have three children that were adopted in other families that didn't work out. 
because those families should have never adopted. They ended up, long story, in our home. And so I just want to be clear that this should not be a guilt trip for people to adopt. Um, there are all sorts of reasons not to. And one of the big problems in adoption right now is people don't count the cost of what it might look like, how hard it might be, and uh, that sometimes they do it with the wrong motives, and um, they think it's going to fix their marriage. Uh, they think that this whole thing just always ends happily ever after. Uh, churches that have a lot of adoptions going on, uh, it tends to sometimes create a second class of Christians so that people think if they don't adopt, then they're not walking close enough with the Lord. They're not deep enough in their walk. And so uh, the thing that we're advocating for, my wife and I and others, is more something like uh, pre, pre-adoption counseling like we do premarital counseling to help families work through whether or not they should do it. Part of the question, I think, has to do with, we already had biological children, so why, why would we adopt? Um, our message is not that everybody should adopt, but I do think we need to think more about adoption, not just merely in terms of a solution for folks that can't have children. That is a great solution for folks that can't have children, but it's not merely a solution. And so we thought it through. Uh, we wanted to be a part of taking care of widows and orphans, Uh, in a way that involved bringing children into our home permanently. Uh, We wanted to put our money where our mouth was in terms of we'd always been pro-life, and so we wanted to to do some things that that showed that in our own family. But um, it's had a fantastic impact on our family. Uh, People say, well, what a good thing you did for those children. Uh, We just always turn it around and say, you have no idea what those children have done for us. And so it's a, it's a picture of the gospel. It's at the heart of the gospel. But, um, yeah, that's... Okay. You, know, you mentioned premarital counseling. And, Jen, I know you're a big part of the training and equipping ministry mm-hmm. of this church here and that you all do a lot on that front, training and preparing people for, for marriage and training families. Walk us through a little bit what the Village Church does within the congregation here that we might be able to learn from? Well, it varies from campus to campus. Depending, We have, we have a range of demographics. Sure. You know, each campus is unique, and so uh, there, you might see more of that at our Dallas campus where we have younger um, people. My responsibility here at the Village is for our, our adult education arm, which is um, actually the topical things that we would do would be more along doctrinal lines, and then we have men's and women's Bible classes And when we um, started to think about what's the way to do this so that families can uh, learn together uh, within the constraints that we deal with here from a facility standpoint, which is a very real concern for us, um, we began to look at, well, what would happen if um, the men's and the women's classes were studying the same thing? And then we had classes that husbands and wives can attend together. And then while you're in a class, your children are actually receiving teaching over the same thing that you're talking about. Uh, One of the things that's been really cool to see here is that um, our curriculum for years in Little Village and Kids Village has been geared around teaching very young children the attributes of God. Mm. Well, guess what we're doing in men's and women's Bible class? We're looking for the attributes of God anytime we read through a text. So what we have tried to do to help families have conversations about the Bible together is make sure that they have a shared language and a shared approach and are even going through the same thing at the same time so that they can sit around the dinner table and say, hey, look what we learned in Matthew this week. That's good. Susie, I know you serve on the board of the Lifesavers Foundation. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Lifesavers, they work to assist women and teens who face unplanned pregnancies. 
and try to be a you know, gospel-helpful light in their lives. So I know you've given a lot of thought to women in crisis. What do you feel like the church has done well, and what do you feel like the church really needs to do more of? What, what should be our focus? I do think the church has been very successful with pregnancy centers, yeah. and I do think that is that ministry has been um, a huge part of kind of the changing of the mind of our nation regarding abortion and the importance of the pro-life position. So I do think churches have been successful in that, and I applaud that. I think the next step is exactly what Todd and Randy are talking about, well, Jen too. What do you do with children once they get here? And the pro-life community has been criticized for saying, yeah, you just get the babies here, then you run off and do something else. That is really not true. It is not a warranted criticism, but they don't listen to me when I <laughs> defend it. Um, but I, at Lifesavers, we have a new project. Todd and I were just talking about this, uh, our doctor, the doctor spot, a pediatric mobile clinic yeah. that goes into the un- underserved neighborhoods in our community. Uh, Texas has one, is, one of the highest rates of uninsured children, mm. uh, which is shameful. And I'm embarrassed about that, personally. And um, we go into these neighborhoods. We have the PA that's on board. She comes from a poverty background. She knows these kids instinctively and the families. And it has been a huge ministry to minister to these children, to their health needs. And then, of course, you end up ministering to their families as well. But um, to be honest, we've had difficulty getting funding for that or people catching the vision for that. So I think any emphasis we can do on these types of ministries, especially foster care and orphan care, is I just think we should put 100% of our effort behind that because that's what you're talking about. And it's happening. People, our culture just in general doesn't know about it like we do. Todd, we've got a lot of people in this room that are in ministry, pastoring, and on church staffs, ministry of various sorts. And I know anyone who knows anything about you knows you spend a lot of time with your family and have a lot of fun with your family. And you're a very public figure. A lot of people know who you are, see you. Anyone in ministry sort of feels that fishbowl tension. Like, how do you navigate the, you know, difficulties of being in ministry and having a family, and, you know, doing both of those things really well. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I don't let them put me in a fishbowl. I remind them we're all in a fishbowl, yeah. right? Every one of us is supposed to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. I pastor a church. It's a kingdom of priests. Yeah. So I have a unique role because of some of my teaching and leadership gifts, but I let them know that their life is just as significant and as important as mine. So I'm not going to let them push me or my children into a place that I I'm going to have to be what I have never been, which is a person who's already been through the sanctification process, mm. clept into heaven, been glorified, and returned to earth to serve my body. <laughs> okay? I mean, that's just not who I am. And so I tell them all the time, man, if you guys knew the truth about me, you wouldn't have come in here. <laughs> but if I knew the truth about you, we wouldn't have let you in. All right? <laughs> so let's just start with that, you know, as a baseline. Now, hopefully the sin isn't so egregious and gross it can't be that it, it, it causes us to forfeit our right to lead, but I don't pretend that I'm through the sanctification process, and I don't ask my kids. You know, um, my, my kids have been asked the question a lot, man, what's it like to be a PK? And they all respond the same way. We're not a PK. PK is a pejorative term of people who have abandoned their family in order to advance maybe, uh, well, not the mission, often their name in association with the mission, okay? And my kids go, my dad never did that. And so, you know, 
just to, I just tell people all the time, you got to set your priorities right. Randy already alluded to 1 Timothy 5, right, which says that if you don't provide for your household, that has a lot to do with widows and all that different stuff, but it has application, of course, to uh, the way you provide for your own biological children. We just got through talking about a foster care program, right? If I abandon my own children and they become prodigals, somebody else has got to stop what they're doing in order to care for my children that I've created prodigals with so I can go out and change the world, right? Billy Graham, who is appropriately an icon for so many things that he did well, had done a lot of guys of great injustice. And he would tell you that his greatest mistake and his greatest source of personal grief was the way he sacrificed his family on the altar of worldwide evangelism. And, um, and I'll just tell you, you don't want to make that mistake. You just, you know, you're called to be a husband, if you're a man, to your wife, and a father to your children. And you better do that exceedingly well. It happens to be one of the qualifications to uh, be fit for spiritual leadership, not have this persona that your family has it all together. And what you want to have as a persona is that your family is all committed to what Susie prays for her family every day, that you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And if you love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that means you're going to love each other first, all right? And you do good to the household of faith first, and your own household first. And so that's what I always tell people. And the way I set my priorities is by asking myself, what are the things that only I can do? And so I'm the only guy in the history of the world with this DNA who lives in this particular time that God can have a personal relationship with. And he longs in a way that I still am trying to figure out to have a deep and abiding personal relationship with me. And so that's the first thing I've got to do. And then secondly, I'm the only guy on earth that can be a faithful husband to Alex Wagner. I'm the only guy that can be a biological present father to my six kids. And so I better do that well. And then if I have time to do other things well, and you should, then do them well, but never at the expense and cost of your family. So I think it's, uh, I think it's a sin for a pastor to have PKs. I really do. And, um, and so because of what that term means. And if you're kids, you need to ask your kids, hey, you know, my, I have, my, my fifth kid is about to go to college. And uh, someone asked him recently, what he was looking for to college and, and if he had any hesitancy. He goes, the only hesitancy I've got is that I'm going to leave Watermark. I'm going to leave the church that I grew up in. I love this place. Now, how many kids, I heard him say that and I kind of went, all right. How many, how many kids love their parents' community of faith? And the answer is, um, the communities of faith that didn't make them pretend to be somebody they're not, uh, a community of faith that didn't steal their father from them, a community of faith that modeled for them there's something worth living for more than just the latest fleeting thing. And so, look, man, um, like Susie, I've made mistakes as a parent, right? Raised my voice, been a jerk, been an idiot. But because I'm a follower of Jesus. I was a jerk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been. So what am I doing on this panel? Okay. All right. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, but, but, but you know what you do? You model for your kids. Man, hey, hey forgive me and reconcile, make amends. And then you use it as a teaching opportunity with folks. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm not afraid to tell folks, hey, man, this week, this is where I didn't follow and trust the Lord with all my heart. I leaned on my own understanding. My flesh, you know, went to war against uh, the spirit. And this was some of the fallout of that. I mean, if it's appropriate, I work that in to let people know, hey, your pastor's still on the way to Christ-likeness. This isn't my church. This is Jesus' church. I didn't die for the sins of the world, right? I am not going to let you make me somebody that I'm not. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. And I take my faith seriously. I need you to spur me on to love and good deeds. And if I act like I don't have any real needs, how can you spur me on? So you be present with your kids. 
You model authenticity. In other words, just be who you really are. And then, um, and then you lead your family. And so I just can't imagine even wanting to do ministry and not doing it to your family. It's just, I don't even have a category for it. Yeah. Randy, I know one of the things that I know my parents in my own life grappled with when I was a kid was extracurricular stuff. I feel like I spent my whole life playing travel baseball at an early age. And now, you know, I'm seeing like, kindergarten travel gymnastics. You know, it's like, they can't read, but there's already all-stars. Um, we're already on college prep for everything. And what, the, you know, all of these programs make, you know, life difficult. You've got to make choices. What, what are some of the things that we could, you know, what have you done in the life of your family with your kids that uh, you feel like have been helpful? Yeah, so <clears throat> at the risk of offending everybody, uh, let me say, First of all, your kid is not as good an athlete as you think they are. Uh, secondly, they're not going pro. Okay, So even the NCAA motto is there are so many hundreds of thousands of student athletes, most of whom are going pro in something other than sports. So even the NCAA knows they're not going pro. Uh, there are much more academic scholarships than there are athletic scholarships. So I love sports. I've always loved sports. I played sports growing up. Some of my happiest memories are me playing catch and my dad coaching my baseball teams. Um, what we and, and so sports is a is a we have a multi-pronged approach to discipleship in our home. Sports is one, just one of those prongs. And what we've discovered, we've done the travel ball. I have a son that has played college ball. What we've discovered over the years is you can get as a parent everything you need to get out of sports in terms of home discipleship by just playing your local recreation league. Pay the seventy dollars, get the hat and the shirt and play the 12 or 15 games, and you can get the teamwork, winning, losing, discipline, failure, success, making an error in front of everybody, all the things that you would hope as a parent to get in terms of discipleship, you can get it without playing travel ball, without going crazy with playing every weekend, spending all that money. So I know we're short on time. I have way more to say than that, but <laughs> that is it. And don't, don't think you're, you're, you're depriving your kid of an experience because they aren't playing at the highest possible levels. They can get everything you want at the regular level and uh, take the money and the time and take them on a mission trip. That has worked way better for us than uh, being an excessive athlete. So, Well, we are running short on time, and I have more questions than I have time, but uh, w would you join me in thanking these panelists? Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Keep up with the latest episodes by subscribing on iTunes or Google Podcast. And don't forget to come back next week for an interview with the legendary John Perkins.